Good morning. morning. You guys hear me well? I'll take take that as a yes. Usually if I say that and no one answers, it's usually that you can't hear me. But I'm going to assume that you can. Good morning. Um, I wanted to share with you all a little bit about my college life when I was a a college student just a few years, a few months ago. Um, And so when I first went to college, I went to Juniata College. I was a rough and tough football player. Um, under the likes of the Jerry Sandusky. And it was a year after, my, into my sophomore year, where I was gonna leave the team. I was gonna transfer, and so I lost like 10 pounds over the summer, lost a lot of muscle mass, decided not to join the football team. But I was still um, rooming with seven other football players. And as you can imagine, they, they were fun. Um, our, our rooms were set up, we had one big common room and then four rooms that broke off. Um, I'll put it this way, my, my direct roommate, he was, he was very kind. When his, when his girlfriend would come into town, they would go get their own hotel. Um, my other roommates, uh, I'll say, weren't as gracious, weren't as kind. And so it was a, a rough living situation for me. It was a daily basis, hearing different conflicts or different relationships formed. Um, and then there was one roommate um, who would directly talk to me every week about his different interactions with ladies. And I got to share with him, like, what's the biblical view of marriage? What's the biblical view of dating? All these different things. But honestly, when I look back onto it, there was many nights where I'm, I'm praying to God, why do you have me here? This can't be, can't be your plan for me. And I'm, I'm sure many of you have been through similar situations. You've just maybe had, had a rough um, lot in life. Maybe the insurance wasn't covering, covering something for you. Maybe a spouse left. Maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend hasn't talked to you for a while. And maybe you're at a point in your life where you wondered, God, what are you doing? You, you, you can't want me here. And so over the past two months, we've seen this happen to a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph has had a crazy life, to, to say the least. He has went through, he, so his brothers sold him into slavery. From being sold into slavery, Joseph was accused of rape by his slave, by his slave owner's wife. From being then put into prison, he was then made second in command over all of Egypt. So, kind of unexpected turns and twists, some good, some bad. But you, I, I can imagine at least, Joseph wondering pretty often, saying, God, what are you doing? This, this can't be where you want me to be right now. And so he never truly knew what was going to happen to him next. But yet, Joseph continued to faithfully rely on God through the ups and the downs and the unknown. And this was partly due to Joseph's knowledge and understanding of who God was. See, Joseph knew that hindrances or obstacles in his life were not obstacles to the plan of God. He knew even though bad things were happening to him, that God still had a plan for his life. And so over time, when Joseph became second in command, all of his brothers actually came to Egypt and he was able to find reconciliation, able to find forgiveness to his brothers because God has molded him through all of his suffering and his life to make him strong in his faith, with, which led all of his family to move to Egypt. They moved a great deal of distance to Egypt, to a land of Goshen specifically. And it was this time of great joy at the discovery of Joseph. You've had this brother who was lost for over 20 years. By lost, I mean they kind of sold him into slavery, but he was lost for 20 years, and then they find him, and they find forgiveness with, with Joseph. And so there was great joy. And this lasted a little bit of time until their father, Jacob, passed away. 
And with the passing of Jacob, there was great grief, great sadness. And all of Egypt, it says that, the, the scripture says that all of Egypt mourned for 70 days. And that's, that's an excessive amount of time. When a pharaoh died, you would mourn for 72 days. So what we can conclude from that is just that Egypt as a whole loved Joseph. Joseph was kind of their man. And when his dad dies, they, they all are saddened. And so what happens is a large cohort of Egyptian rulers, Egyptian leaders, and all of Joseph's family takes Jacob's body back to Egypt. They take his body or back to the promised land where their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of their wives are buried. So they take him back there. And it seems like, okay, then they move back to Egypt. The brothers and Joseph live in the land of Goshen. All is fair. All is dandy. Dad passes away. That's a normal part of life. And the brothers are going to be okay. But see, the brothers start to get concerned here. So after Jacob passed away and he was buried, the brothers became concerned. And that's where we're going to start to jump into Scripture today. Um, so now as we jump into Genesis 50, uh, we'll probably bring up the next slide here with the brothers concerned. Uh, we'll be reading Genesis 50, uh, verses 15 through 18. Come on, Jacob. I forgot to grab the Bible. I apologize. didn't even think about it. So we'll be reading Genesis 50, 15 through 18. And so now... Let us now prepare our hearts and minds for the reading of God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servant of God, of your father. Joseph then wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So we see the brothers here get, get concerned. Um, as far as we know, dad never told them to say this. Dad never had this last request for them to tell Joseph. And it was probably because that Joseph has already forgiven them. They've already found reconciliation. What we, have, what we have here is the brothers, they don't believe in the forgiveness that they have been given from Joseph. See, for them, their family loyalty was based in their, in their dad, in their father. But for Joseph, his family loyalty, his forgiveness, wasn't based in Jacob, but it was based in, the, in, in God. And so he was able to continue to be forgiving, to continue to love them, even though their father has passed, has passed away. So they, the brothers get scared. They lie about what their father has said. But yet Joseph continues. It says that he wept. It says that he has cared for them, even during this time. And so I think for a lot of us, we're like the brothers sometimes, especially with God. We have this idea that, God, you couldn't have forgiven me. Well, well, let me ask for forgiveness again. So the brothers go back to Joseph, ask for forgiveness again. And, and, and Joseph's just in this state of, I already forgave you. And so the, the brothers didn't get the, this whole concept of forgiveness because they, like many of us, have this idea that, hey, I did something bad, so something bad should happen to me. And as Americans, I think we like this idea that we should get what's coming to us. But that's not always how God works. Uh, let's then see in verse 19 through 21 how Joseph responds. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, 
But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't this good news right here? Joseph said he forgives them. He, he opens his response with, do not fear. Because his brothers are worried. He says, do not fear. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. Joseph could have easily have sent these guys to the grave. He could have, he, see, he was in, in a place like a God. The Egyptian people would have considered him godlike. And so that's why he, he reassures them, am I in the place of God? He knows that he isn't. He has this good humility about him. So we see that Joseph has every right to send these people to prison. But what Joseph chooses to do is to take the, the viewpoint, the perspective of God. He says, okay, well, I wonder what, how, how does God see this? And I think that's the biggest kicker in some way of the whole book of Genesis. He tells them that what they did for evil, God intended for good. He says in verse 20 that what they did was actually for the good of all the people. And I really can't get over that statement. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. So Joseph, unlike probably many of us, he doesn't have any problems with his brother throwing him into a pit and selling him into slavery because he knew God was working in that. He knew God was orchestrating those events to take him to be where he is today so that millions of people would be able to be saved. Joseph knows that he has to trust God and adjust his plans accordingly after God works. See, he doesn't know exactly what God's plan is for his life, but he knows that he's going to trust God and adjust after that. And so, I don't know for you, um, but that, that phrase, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that really hits me hard. And I, for the re- most of our time together today, we're going to really sit on that. Um, what, what, what does it mean that what other people intended for evil, God meant for good? How does that process? Possibly that might make some of us, some of us a little upset. That might not really sit too well. So what are the implications of this text? So just a little more explanation if you haven't been with us. God set up this domino effect here. See, the pit that his brothers threw him in led to his cell into slavery. The cell into slavery led to the accusation of rape. Accusation of rape led to prison. The prison allowed him to meet the cupbearer. The cupbearer's dreams allowed Joseph to interpret his dreams. Cupbearer went back into the position with the pharaoh. And it just so happened that the cupbearer forgot about Joseph until the right time for two years, until Pharaoh had a dream that needed interpreted. And so because of that, Joseph was able to become second in command over all of Egypt, thereby saving millions of lives and allowing his family to come back to Egypt so they would be saved. And not only for them to be saved, but for the future promises of God to be fulfilled in the Abrahamic people. So it, it's a lot happening here. See, the, the pit, it really seemed meaningless. It really seemed evil. For many of us, we look at bad things in our past, and we're like, God, that doesn't make any sense. Why did that happen? But Joseph is able to look onto the pit and say, oh, this is why this happened. And he's able to understand that. And so I just want to be clear with this. Um, God allowed Joseph to go through all of these, this turmoil, all of this suffering, all of this pain, so that good would come out of it. The suffering was not meaningless, and it had a point, and it had a purpose. This is not a new idea in the Bible. We see the same thing throughout the whole book of Genesis and the whole Bible. 
Um, God knew that he had to save his people from the very beginning. So whatever sin and Satan put in his path, he was able to overcome. So whether it was the Tower of Babel, whether it was Adam and Eve, um, whether it was um, Abraham's lying tendencies, corruption or captivity, God was using all of that to set the stage for Jesus Christ. Who is the greatest example of all of that? And this is all because God has absolute sovereignty. And so what this means is that he has jurisdiction, he has power, he has the right, he has authority. And knowing that God has authority means that he is the author. He is the author of our lives. So random, surprise, coincident are not words in God's vocabulary. All things are purposeful and for his glory and good. So this morning we read uh, Genesis 50 verse 20, which read, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. If we then jump to the New Testament, we see what the New Testament says that's in line with this. It's Romans 8.28, and it says, And we know that in all things God works for good of those who love him. See, if we theologically stack these two verses on top of each other, it's something quite incredible what we have. We know that God turns intended evils into eventual good, and that God works all things out for the good of those who love him. So knowing that, what should we fear? In this light, what could go against us? Um, James, in the book of James, says that we should rejoice in our trials. We should rejoice in our suffering because they make us into the people that God has called us to be. So when all the bad things happen in our life, we have God on our side. We have God in our, in, in our bullpen, if you will. And so we are left with the Apostle Paul saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God did not have this kind of power, he wouldn't be God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that when you wake up in the morning, you see the sun beating through the, through the window, and you see the dust particles flying within those. God has power over those dust particles just as much as he has over your lives as well. And this is the type of power our God has. And so this teaching, this, this truth, that God intend, turned intended evils into eventual good. I'm going to be honest, it, 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 it's wonderful. It's this good truth. But it's also this hard teaching, if you will. Because in the one hand, we have that God is for us, that he's not against us, that God has got our back, that he's working for good. But in the other hand, in the other hand, we, we have abusive parents. We have the evils that are in this world. We have corruption. We have ISIS. We have every one thing or the other. And we know that God could do something about that. So in the one hand, we have this beautiful teaching that God, God's, be, God's behind us. He has our back. He's using our suffering in our life for good. And that he has control. But in the other hand, we do have the evils in this world. We do have the pain. We do have the suffering. So how, how, how do we reconcile those two things? What, what we have with those two things is what many people call the, the problem of evil. You might have heard it before. Um, basically, it goes something like this. That if we believe that God is to be all-powerful, and, and we believe that God is all-loving, and we admit to the fact that there's evil and suffering in the world, we come to this conclusion. That if God wants to alleviate suffering, but can't, he's not all-powerful. If he can, but chooses not to, he's not all-loving. I'll, I'll repeat that. So if we believe that God is all-powerful, all-loving, and admit to the fact that evil and suffering exist, then we come to the conclusion, or some would say we come to the conclusion, that if God wants to alleviate suffering but can't, he's not all-powerful. 
if he can, but chooses not to. He's not all-loving. Which would definitely run in the face of how we view God, because we do believe him to be all-powerful and all-loving at the same time that evil and suffering exist in the world. So how do we... How does that work? Why are we here today? If, that, if that's a valid statement that God can't be both, if that's a paradox, then why are we here? How do we reconcile this? So I, I do two things here um, with looking at God's wisdom and Jesus Christ. So by God's wisdom, I mean that he is far more wise, far more thoughtful than any of us could ever imagine to be. Um, I imagine if I went up to an eight-year-old right now and I said, hey, let me explain to you the atonement of Christ and all of its specialties and all the little details of it. It would go right over that eight-year-old's head. If any of us went up to Pensadale Tuna right now and asked about a physics theory and had the physics professor explain the whole thing to us, most of us probably would have no idea what this professor is talking about. But yet, at the same time, we think we can understand God, which is almost humorous, because God has been around for all eternity. He, had, he is far much more wiser. He has created us, so he is our creator. And so the fact that we can't understand even all the people in this room right now, the, few, the fact that we can't understand what's going on around the world, just points to the fact that, well, maybe God can. Maybe because I can't doesn't limit God. See, if we could understand why God does all that he does, if we could understand his reasoning, he would probably be a pretty crummy God. Because if we're honest, we can barely watch a movie and understand what's all happening in it. And God is the, like, the author of the movie. He, he's the one who has designed every intricate detail. So just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it, it's not unreasonable. Does that make sense? So just a quick example. If I put a baby elephant in a, a, a tent, in a little tent, and I asked any of you to go find the little elephant, the baby elephant, it would be real quick. Any of you could just go in there and say, I see the baby elephant. There it is. But if I put this little small mosquito in there called a noceum, that's what they're actually called, a noceum, and I put that in the little tent and said, hey, go in and find this mosquito I put in there. You might go in and spend a few hours in there. You might never find it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. So just because we can't figure out the reasoning for something, just because we don't see it obviously, doesn't mean there isn't a reason for it. And we need to, at many times, fall on to God and say, okay, God, you are much more wiser than I. And we need to humble ourselves in that. The second way that I reconcile the problem of evil is with Jesus. What we have with Jesus, as most of us have been have heard before, is that Jesus was sent to the cross as an innocent man. He was sent to die. He was battered. He was bruised. He was ripped of his skin and died on a cross. And while even on the cross, he was seeking forgiveness of those who put him on that cross. See, Satan thought he won with Jesus Christ. Satan, when Jesus dies on that cross, Satan thought, I win. Game over, God. I just killed you. And so Jesus does die. And for a sad Friday, and for a very silent Saturday, it appeared that he had. And God had to watch all of this. God the Father had to watch his son die on the cross unjustly. He, he suffered. See, that, that's something that I don't think we always understand, that God suffered. God suffered loss. God suffered heartache. And so on the cross, we can see that God knows what it feels like to suffer. We can know that God is with us in our suffering. And so whenever something in our life pops up, we can know that, that God is there. So we look onto the cross because we know that God is beside us. 
when we, we have suffered loss, when we have suffered betrayal, we can look onto the cross and know that God is beside us. When a loved one dies, we can look onto the cross and know that God is beside us because he knows what it's like to have a loved one die. When we're depressed and think the world is caving in on us, we can look to God because he is beside us. And that's a far crazy understanding of God, right? That God understands our pain. That even though God is so much wiser, so much so, so distant from us, that we have a God that has chosen to come into that divide. We have a God that has chosen to come near to us, even though he could have stayed far away. Because let's be honest, we're messy people. We have messy lives. We have a lot of stuff going on. But God chose us to come into that mess, chose us to come into that dirt and grime, and he is with us in that. And so with the question of evil and suffering, we need to know that God is not immune to suffering. And what we can understand from that is that we might not be able to understand necessarily the reason, the exact reason why there's so evil and suffering in the world, but we know what the reason isn't. We know that the reason isn't that God doesn't love us. We know the reason isn't that he doesn't care. We have a God that so much loves us and hates suffering that he was willing to get involved in it. And that's the type of God that we have. See, what Satan intended as the ultimate evil against God, God turned and flipped the script to turn into the ultimate good, the greatest good in all of humanity. So Jesus walks out of the grave Sunday morning. I can just imagine Satan, his jaws to the ground. He has no idea what's going on. Jesus resurrects. And so what God does is turn the greatest intended evil and turns it into the greatest good. And I believe if God can do that with Jesus, if God can do that with to, to Satan, what can't he do for us? Because I believe God can do the, the very same thing. Just one thing I wanted to bring this home for us. I've been learning in the public health field that there is this expression or this term called ACE. Many of you may, may, may have heard it before. It stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there, it, it's really complex and really this kind of newer study. Um, and and what, what they've been finding is the more ACEs you have in your past, in your childhood, before you turn 18, the more likely you will have obesity, depression, substance abuse, STDs, cancer, heart disease, chronic lung disease, and diabetes. And it's shocking, things that happen before you turn 18. These include anything from verbally being, being verbally, physically, emotionally attacked, molestation, not being loved, wearing dirty clothes, having parents who were drunk, having parents who were separated or divorced, a household member having a mental, serious mental illness, or having gone to prison. That list isn't exhaustive. In a recent article I read that children with toxic stress live much of their lives in fight, flight, or fright mode. They respond to the world as a place of constant danger, with their brains overloaded with stress hormones and unable to function appropriately. They can't focus on learning. They fall behind in school or fail to develop healthy relationships with peers or create problems with teachers and principals because they are unable to trust adults. Some kids do all three. With despair and guilt and frustration pecking away at their psyches, they often find solace in food, alcohol, tobacco, methamphetamines, inappropriate sex, high-risk sports, and or work and overachievement. And these kids don't regard these coping methods as problems. Consciously or unconsciously, they use them as solutions to escape from depression, anxiety, anger, fear, and shame. 
And so lo- looking at this study, it, it really make, make, makes me look around, makes me wonder about us, makes me wonder about myself, makes me look at this community and our lives that we've had. I bet many of us can look into our past and say, oh, I fall onto that list. We have many things in our past that have really wrecked our lives. And as we've been looking at Joseph, I'm sure any sociologist or psychologist would look at Joseph and say, this guy, he's a lost cause. His parents um, had multiple, multiple wives. He, his brothers threw him into a pit. He was hated. He was accused of rape. Um, he, was su- tried, he was seduced multiple times. He was put in prison and forgotten. I'm sure he had a little bit of emotional scarring. I'm sure he was emotionally hurt. I'm sure he was distraught. I'm sure we can relate. But see, Joseph, as we saw in this story, as we've seen through the story of Joseph, he was able to overcome all of these adverse childhood experiences. He was able to overcome his brokenness. He was able to overcome his hurt, his pain, his frustrations. See, that's why I think this is one of the most incredible passages, because, this, because Joseph was able to look dead in the eye those who have hurt him and said, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. I forgive you. So I ask all of us here, are we able to look at those in our past who have hurt us, whether it's a friend or relative, an ex, and look at them dead in the eye and say, hey, what you intended for evil against me, God actually meant for good. I, I forgive you. That's, that's not easy. That's not an easy teaching. And so over this series, we've been talking about this over and over. We've been talking about how, how do we get through this? How do we overcome and one of the key things here is that we need to be open. We need to be vulnerable. We need to be open as a community to embrace the forgiveness that God has given us. Pastor Ken talked last week about the um, ungrateful servant. Um, there was this man, he was forgiven um, about $12 trillion, if you will. And he went out, he was forgiven of all this money, went out onto the street. This guy owed him like 12 bucks. And he says, hey, you owe me this or you're going to die. And it sounds preposterous, but in a very real way, that's the same story we have. That God has forgiven us this great deal that we could never pay back. But yet we, we see these people who have hurt us. And compared to what God has done for us, it, it's not even comparable. What we need to do as Christians is, is continue to fall back onto his graces and to, and to his mercies and to his forgiveness. M- many times... Um, in the Christian faith, we look at the gospel. We, we, we hear this word gospel a lot. Now, I, I know I like to say it a lot. And we don't always know exactly what it means. Or we kind of do know what it means, but we think it's kind of just for new Christians, right? Oh, that, that's how new Christians get through the door. That's how new Christians join our, our party, if you will. But really, the gospel isn't just the ABCs, but it, it's the A to Z of, of the Christian faith. And it's something that we need to go back to every day. It's truly the only way we can overcome our problems. The only way we can overcome our past hurts, our past deceit. We need to continually go back to the gospel. See, what we need to understand is that we have a God in heaven who loves us. We have him as a father. And that even though we are all deserving to spend eternity in hell, God came down and took our place. And that he says, I love you. I want to be with you. I am your father. You are my bride. Until we're able to go back to this gospel and remind ourselves every day of this, we're going to continue to harbor our pride, continue to harbor our pain and our hurts. As I said a few weeks ago, we're going to continue to hold our cups. Do you remember that? 
And what we need to do is remind ourselves of, the, of this every day. And that's the only way and through community we can do that. Additionally, in the future, even if you get over all of your passwords, all over your past mistakes, if you get through that, sadly, being a Christian doesn't mean life's going to be perfect. Stuff's still going to happen. We're still going to have people in our lives that interfere with us, that get in our way. And so what are we to do now? What, what's our responsibility now as Christians now that we have this forgiveness from God? Well, it's to do the same thing Joseph did. See, our responsibility is to trust and adjust. We should have that right here. To trust God means to believe and rely on him through all of our circumstances. As we said earlier, God is far much more wiser than we could ever comprehend and so because of that, we can trust in him. We, we can understand that God has a better plan for our lives than what we do. And if God has a better plan for our lives than we do, then we, we should trust him. And God's plan for you, by, by better, I don't mean Mercedes Benz. Maybe, maybe that means a broken gutter sometimes. Maybe that means a neighbor coming over to help you with something. But God has this great life in store for you that's going to have eternal significance. And we don't know what that is. But we continue to trust in him and being faithful in the little things through a long period of time. As Christians, as we all know, we're called to be servants, right? We're called to be, be servants to God. And as hard as it is to, to, to know, but or as hard as it is to, to admit or to understand that a servant's task was to do menial tasks over a long period of time with no accolades and no recognition. So I wonder, I wonder that, are, are we able to do that? Are we able to trust in God being servants, about being faithful in the little things with no accolades, with no recognition? The second application today is to adjust. When we trust God, that doesn't mean he needs to line our lives up with the way we want it. Um, so often we trust in God for a day, and then something goes wrong with day two, and we're like, God, I trusted you, though. You're supposed to line my life up just the way I want it. That's not the way God works. The way, when we trust in God, we trust that no matter what comes our way, that it's good. That God is going to work that for good. That he's going to turn intended evils, maybe even accidental evils, into good. And so we adjust our plans. To do that, we need to understand that God has walked our steps before us. God, God knows. God has understood. God has prepared. I remember when Christina was in the hospital, I got to tell her that God has, was already here. God was here last week preparing this hospital room for you. That wasn't a fun experience for Christina. I'm sure none of us would really enjoy going, going to the hospital and out of the hospital and back into the hospital. For many of us, that would be very distressing. But see, what, what was intended for evil was actually meant for good. And God is working in all of our lives for good, for reconciliation, for purpose. And what we need to do is trust and adjust our plans. And I'll be real honest with you guys. Not easy to do. That's, that's rough. Even maybe looking back, we can say, okay, I should have done this. But in the day-to-day, how do we do that? Like, just turn on the news. Um, I, I, know, I know some of us in here aren't very happy with how the elections are going. Um, I, I know with things with, with North Korea, I know things with just this community and, and the drug abuse that has been happening rampant in, in Pennsylvania. I know it's really easy to to say, I, I can't trust God right now. I can't adjust my plans to what he has for me because it seems like everything's going downhill. But what, what, we, what we need to do is to know that we need to humble ourselves. When we take control over our lives, 
That's when it goes downhill. Allowing God to take control. Uh, if you've ever seen the license plate, um, God is my co-pilot. Um, that's awful. God needs to be our pilot. Um, God being the controller of our lives isn't just that God's in the um, shotgun seat saying, hey, let me drive. It's Jesus saying, hey, I own this car. Let me drive. And that's what he wants to do in all of our lives. He's like, hey, I, I own this world. I own this reality. Let me show you how it's to be done. And so we can trust in this God. We can adjust our plans because of this. And so when I started this sermon, I said I had a wild situation in junior attic. Thinking about that, that young boy um, who would come to me every week and just tell me about his different sexual encounters uh, wasn't easy for me. But I'm incredibly happy to say that this young man continues to talk to me and that he's actually getting married soon, that he has come to faith in Jesus Christ. So even though I wanted out and that I had no desire to be where I was, that God was actually doing something behind my back. And I think that's so sneaky of him sometimes. He does stuff behind her back. I wish he just showed us what he, he was doing. And so for us, we need to understand God does stuff behind her back. God's working in all these situations. Because our lives aren't ruled by faith, but they're ruled by Jesus Christ. So the gravity of this whole statement, this message is huge. That God turns intended evils into eventual goods. And that's why our sermon series was titled the way it was. You'll get through this. You will get through this. And you'll be better for it. And God is beside you and he is with you every step of the way. Because remember, the, the problems and the obstacles in our life are not obstacles, they're not problems to God. They're actually a part of his plan. God is with you and he is caring for you in the midst of everything. So let us now pray together. Dear Heavenly Father God, thank you for having sovereignty over our lives, for having control, for having power. God, we pray that we can rely on you. God, we pray that we can humble ourselves and know that we don't, we don't understand all that you understand, that you have a better plan than we do. God, teach us your ways. Teach us your word. God, allow us to not have hiccups in our faith. Allow us to run steady. God, allow us to not grow weary of doing good, but be formed within us on a daily basis. God, we love you. Be with us this day and for forevermore. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Take some time now. We have the meeting after church. Feel free to get any drinks or snacks that you want. We have a little banquet over there, it seems. Um, so grab a, uh, a treat and we'll, we'll reconvene and have our little meeting um, for the duration of our time together today. Thank you.